But uh, thank you for being here this morning. I know that on uh, cold mornings and rainy mornings complicate things. I know just regular mornings, depending upon how your weekend has been and your week, we're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today and it's so important that we're together. I want to welcome those that are visiting with us. Glad that you're here. Thank you for coming. And those that are faithful here every week, we're so glad. I'm always glad to see your faces. Live streaming with us, um, hello. I know Pastor Pam has already welcomed you. One of these days, we're gonna figure out how we can live stream a message from my house. And um, I can just come up on the screens and talk to you um, and enjoy that. But no, I'm not making light of that. I know that sometimes these crazy mornings, but we're glad that you're with us wherever that might be. May you be blessed um, uh, wherever that might be. Well, we're in a, uh, in a new series, and this new series is called um, Knowing My Neighbor. And, um, and I know that knowing our neighbors is so important, and it's, um, it's one of those things that it, it's, we're called to, to actually go more than just a superficial relationship. We're called to really know each other, and to really know each other, uh, we grow. And when we grow, then we, we get to uh, develop a deeper sense of relationship. So our hope is over the, the next five or six weeks, yes, five or six weeks talking about neighboring, um, Pastor Pam and I, we're hoping that we can challenge you. We're hoping we can challenge ourselves that we can get to places where, um, wherever you live, whether it's in a, an apartment complex, a mobile home park, um, a, a single family housing development, um, uh, wherever it might be, uh, we hope that uh, somehow through knowing how to neighbor, things will come to you. Well, we live in a really busy world, don't we? And um, I know that ever since Alexander Graham Bell uttered those words, Watson, come here, I need you. Um, I know that uh, technology has been the driving force behind our lives. And, and believe it or not, we were taught years ago that technology was going to make life a lot easier. I'm, the jury's still out with me on that one. I don't know about that yet. Uh, I think technology complicates things. But, but remember back, I mean, when I was in college, we used to still, our computer science class was <clears throat> learning how to punch the key codes on a, on a little uh, index card that you would feed into a Harris 3 and it would run a program. You'd spend up all night running like 3,000 different cards that you would punch through, and one cotton-picking card would have the wrong code on it, and the whole thing would crash, and it wouldn't tell you which one. That's kind of like those Christmas lights, you know. Uh, ask the Van Dynes, they'll tell you about Christmas lights one season. But anyway, uh, uh, oh, I'm supposed to be talking about knowing my neighbor. I'm sorry. Well, I do know my neighbor. That's why. But anyway, so, so we've had that, you know, floppy disks. Um, we've kind of trans, uh, transitioned into all sorts of interesting things, iPads today, technology at its best. It's, it's supposed to make our lives easier. Um, I have a, a reason to kind of think that it's uh, sometimes uh, complicating, and here's why. Sociologists say that as time goes on, there's a, a, a thing called cocooning. They say that we're becoming a cocooning people. I've mentioned this before in messages. You've heard me talk about this. And what does that mean? It means that just kind of like that, we're, we're kind of drawing inside of a protective cone and we feel comfortable and care there. And we just kind of want to just uh, draw inside and, and push the whole world out. It's kind of a warm, fuzzy place to be. And cocooning kind of looks a little bit like this. If, you, if you're actually suffering from cocooning, and what it means is that you're kind of shutting the whole world out and you're just kind of focusing on, on just meeting your needs. Here's what it might look like. You're, you're driving home today after church. You hit your favorite pizza joints app on your phone. You order a pizza, guaranteed delivery in 45 minutes. You're heading home, lunch has been ordered. You get home, you hit the button on the rearview mirror. Whoosh, the garage door comes up. You pull inside, 
the door closes, it's behind you. This kind of message, I get to make those noises. And the message closes behind you. You go inside while the pizza's being processed and all. You walk in, you either grab a Netflix or a pay-per-view movie, you sit down or the ball game, and you're in your home the rest of the day. That's called cocooning. And what happens with cocooning is it really puts in, in uh, jeopardy our ability to, to know our neighbors and the, and the people who are around us. You know, we, uh, we kind of uh, see the home as our castle and we live inside of that. But Jesus has a lot to say about neighboring. And uh, particularly, I'm going to take us into Matthew chapter um, 20, 22, verses 34 through 40. And uh, this is a very interesting conversation. I've preached on this topic before, but I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle. Uh, so here, Jesus, um, he's being challenged by the religious leaders, the, the guys who know it all, are it all, and want everybody to know they're the all. And uh, so hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, uh, the Pharisees got together. The Sadducees was a religious sect back in that day. Um, the Pharisees were the, the experts of what the law was and everything about the, the Torah. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And I remember there were like 725 or 694 uh, laws of the prophets and things that a good uh, God-fearing Jewish person had to adhere to. So that's what they're challenging. So I tried a little test. Jesus, well, which one's the greatest of all of those? And Jesus said, love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. He's saying love God with everything that there is about you. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is this, and here's the key, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. So Jesus said it's important for us to not only love our neighbors, but before we can love them, we, we, actually, have to, we actually have to know them. So let me just ask you a question this morning. How many of you really know the people that live in your neighborhood? How many of you like deeply know them, not just a casual hello, but people who live near you? You can call them by name. You know what's going on in their family, what's happening in their lives. And, and, and more importantly, ask that question, how many of you really love the people in your neighborhood? And that's a, that's a second piece of this. And that's kind of where I want us to kind of throw this around a little bit today as we're talking about this, because a big portion of God's world revolves around knowing our neighbor. A big part of God's world revolves around the fact that we're not doing life on our own, that we're not just singularly managing and maneuvering through life's um, ins and outs kind of uh, on our own kind of thing. But God said it's time to have community. And, and when we go back to the Genesis story, when Adam, the first creation was made, God said, uh, you're lonely, and I don't want you to be lonely. And God said, there's something even better than just creating you as an individual, creating now a community. And he brought Eve into his life. And, and, and we see the, the whole piece that go for that. So, so God created us to be in community. God said, uh, it is not good for you to be alone. I want you to, to be in community. And, and God does not want the world built upon people that are individualists. He doesn't want us to just kind of move around the world by ourselves. He wants us to lean on each other. He wants us to love each other. He wants us to come to each other in our times of peril. He wants us to gravitate in the needs of safety. He wants us to celebrate the high moments in our lives with other people. And he wants us to draw near and have others to draw near to us uh, in our most vulnerable moments. Um, but, but here's kind of what, what it looks like knowing our neighbor. And maybe some of these stories might, might make some sense for you. Sometimes we think knowing our neighbor is if we get the newspaper delivered. Some people still do that. They have the newspaper delivered. And so you go outside and you grab the paper, and while you're out there, your neighbor happens to be out in the yard, and you're like, hey, how's it going, neighbor? And they wave back, hey, it's doing fine. And just grab the paper, you go back inside, you open it up, you start the cup of coffee, and there's your neighboring for the day. Um, that's one example. Here's another example. How many have uh, dogs in the, in the congregation? We have two. 
Uh, they're huge dogs. They're like 12 pounds apiece. Um, and, and I have a little Maltese Shih Tzu, and yes, you're allowed to say Shih Tzu in church. And um, she's like a Doberman personality. She just really will go after things. And we have a, um, a, a Bichon Poodle, a little toy that um, uh, just is uh, kind but has a cat-like personality. So, so we have two little dogs, and, and so they like to go for walks. And when we have time, uh, we take them for walks. And here's another way you get to know your neighbor. So you're out walking your dog, and, and you're going, and all of a sudden the dog does the unthinkable. They want to go leave a package in the neighbor's yard. Has that ever happened to you? You know, uh, not that you left a package in the neighbor's yard, but that the dog is leaving a package in the neighbor's yard. And so you go out there and your neighbor's out and you, you're looking around, hope, hope nobody's looking. Oh man, there's somebody out there. So you do the humane thing. You go in your pocket, you reach in, you get the bag and you pull it out. You look up, you go, sup, look what I'm doing, cleaning up after the dog. You tie it up and then you take it home and you throw it in the garbage can. Well, sometimes you can get a little daring when you're walking your dog. And when your dog leaves the package in the neighbor's yard, you look around and you don't see anybody. And you do what the Martin family calls the Andy. And that's where you reach down, not you, Andy, but when you reach down and, and uh, you take the bag and you just kind of go, and, and I, we really don't do that. But we were taught that by a friend of ours who lives in Orlando, so you don't really pick up because, well, nobody saw it. And, and thank goodness, because then we'd have to talk to somebody. And, and, and sometimes, so that's, um, that's kind of how the... Um, the uh, neighboring looks. Here's another example of how we might be good neighbors or try to be neighbors or doing neighboring. We hear of a death or a situation uh, that needs attention in our neighborhood and being a good neighbor, we want to take them over something to eat. That's kind of how we respond when, when people have problems at home. We want to take them a meal. We want them to feel good. And if it's a hot meal, even better. So we take over that shrimp and mushroom, uh, special mushroom dish, and we take that over there. And we forget the fact, because we don't know our neighbor, that actually serving them that dish would require also a dose of an EpiPen because they're highly allergic to these things. And so before we even know it, because we don't know our neighbor, we could actually send our neighbor into uh, anaphylactic shock and kill them because we don't know them. That's an extreme, but, but I'm trying to make the point. We need to know who we're dealing with. We need to know our neighbors. We need to know the people um, uh, who are around us. Um, so, so I've been really tossing around this whole series, How to Neighbor, and I've been asking myself the question, Bob, you know, um, what do you know about neighboring? And I'm, I'm going to tell you this morning, I, I'm a horrible neighbor. I know that that probably catches you by surprise. You probably think, you know, in our neighborhood, oh, there's like, you know, this sparkle and stuff. Well, this is the neighborhood where the pastor lives. But, but I'm not a really good neighbor, and I'm going I'm to tell you why that is. Um, because if I'm going to be perfectly honest, um, I have what's called I'm spiritually short-sighted or spiritually far-sighted. And what I mean by spiritually far-sighted is I can, and the people who know me, our staff and, and my family, they, they'll tell you, and, and my friends uh, or our friends, uh, they'll tell you that I can see the need out in the community. I can see we need to, as a church, go be involved in this, this, and this. But where I really, uh, where my spiritual farsightedness gets me is when I look in the neighborhood and where I live, I, I don't see those needs. I, I, I'm farsighted. I, I don't see the immediate needs that are around me. So I take a look at that, and I've, and I've wondered a lot about this whole neighboring series and, and the importance of being a neighbor. So here's a confession. Yes, pastors offer confessions. And I'm not making a joke about this. I'm making this because it's an accountability issue. And if we're going to be brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to hold each other accountable. Amen? And that means you have to hold your pastors accountable, that we're not perfect individuals. We're just like you. Uh, we just have a different calling in life. Um, so here's my confession. Of the 67 homes in our neighborhood and where we live, about 250 people, and I don't know about Patty. I didn't ask her this question, but I know for me, I know two households and a total of five people. 
So that tells you a little bit about you know, how, how my life is. And I can sit here and I can blame it on, well, I'm busy and I've got all these demands. A lot of that's true, but, but it takes some intentionality on my part to be a better neighbor. And I remember one time um, I had a point, a point where, um, you know, thinking about just what that means and all. And I started thinking about in my, my past when I was growing up. I grew up in East Orlando. Um, it was an area called New Azalea Park, which was right near the airport and some major interchanges. That's not so new anymore. I mean, it's, it's an old neighborhood. And, and my parents still live there, 1807 Hollis Drive in Orlando. And I was thinking back about what, what life was like when I was a kid. I mean, I remember we had the Millers next door. There was Pete and V and, and their five kids. And, and then there were the, the Duffs uh, two doors down with their four kids. And there were the Schaefers with all their five boys and the Lanninghams with their, you know, three and two um, uh, you know, girls to boy ratio, and then there were the Moors, and, and so we all knew each other. I mean, are, are you thinking about that now in your life? I mean, we all knew each other. As kids, we would play out in the yard. We would do things together. We wouldn't be sitting inside playing with technology. We'd actually be making stuff up out in the yard, a stick or something, and make a game out of it, and um, never had to shovel snow uh, or walk uphill two ways in snow like my dad did, but, but anyway, um, but, but we, we always made friends and we always did stuff. And when it got late at night, what did we do? We'd go eat at our neighbor's house. You know, we'd be playing at the Duff's house. Well, Mrs. Duff would say, why don't you all have dinner with us? We'd call home, you know, that old, even though it was three doors down, you know, we'd just make the phone call because as kids, we never got to use phones. And so we would call and we'd say, okay, we're, we're staying, no problem. And my parents were the same way. When kids were at our house, they would eat with us. And so we've kind of moved away from this leave it to beaver world, haven't we? We've kind of moved away from this world where, where um, our, our, as parents and as adults that we really know each other, we take care of each other's kids, we watch out for each other's kids. I would respect the, the, my friend's parents as much as I would respect mine when I was in their homes and they, they were allowed to tell me and correct my behavior, right or wrong, don't do this, do that. And we all trusted each other and there was something built upon that. And that's the way neighborhoods used to be. <clears throat> and I, and I, that's why I said I think that the, um, the jury's out on technology because I think technology, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, whereas the goal is to make life easier, I think it's really complicated. And I'm speaking from a first-person point of view. My phone is constantly going off emails, text messages, phone calls. And it's like, come on, give it a rest. And I just never can take a breath. And I started, you know, thinking a little bit about, you know, personality tests because uh, part of uh, wanting to be a better neighbor, I wanted to assess my own personality. Anybody ever taken a personality test? You know, when you go into, when you say, I'm answering a call to the ordained ministry of the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church, you go through some psychological tests before they even start, why? Because they want to make sure you're crazy enough to do this. And uh, actually, it's to actually flush out people that, you know, maybe don't have the uh, emotional metal to, to move forward. But <clears throat> so I've taken personality tests, Myers-Briggs, DISC. Um, you know, Colby, all those things. And they all come back with the same result, that I'm an extrovert. What's an extrovert? An extrovert is somebody who can be in front of people, who likes to go and be, the, you know, come in, life of the party, although my wife is more of a gregarious person than I am. And um, so, you know, uh, the person who's not afraid to, you know, speak and those kinds of things that people gravitate to, uh, generally like to lead and those kind of things. And I, and I started thinking about that, going, okay, okay, so what is it then if I'm that kind of personality then why do I have a hard time neighboring? Why do I have a hard time only knowing two houses, five people in my neighborhood? And I got to thinking that the more candles that go on my birthday cake, the more I've come to realize that that extroversion is turning into a little bit of an introversion. Does that happen to anybody else? The older you get, you're kind of like, you know, kind of pulling back a little bit. And I started thinking a little bit about that, and, and I started understanding that, that really... Um, 
trying to be in, engaged in front and all those things sometimes is very paralyzing for me. It sometimes is um, a little bit difficult to do. So I realize in some of that that I have to adjust my behavior. I have to be more uh, outgoing and trying to be ambitious. And this is where I'm asking you to hold me accountable as we go through this together to meet our neighbors. And I was thinking a little bit about this and, and um, what that would mean and how that would translate. And coming to a greater understanding of that, um, I realized that, you know, uh, I'm the kind of personality that doesn't like to go watch fireworks. You know, Patty loves to watch fireworks. I don't want to go stand in a group of thousands of people um, watching fireworks. You know, believe it or not, I, I kind of am a low-key guy, and Patty will tell people, he's all mine, and yes, I am. But, but, but that's the piece. So, so maybe you struggle with some of these things, too. Maybe you're the kind of person who wants to know your neighbor. Maybe you're the kind of person who needs to know your neighbor, but like me, um, you struggle with that as well. Um, do you ever find anything hard to do at home? Any of you struggle doing things at home? For me, it's answering the doorbell. Um, that's just something that I just don't like to do. I mean, I get home after a long day, the last thing I want to do is answer the door. And we're really lucky in our neighborhood, we have a no solicitation policy. And when people come and ring the doorbell, they're not supposed to do that. And one day, somebody left their service at our door and said, you know, call us, we want to do this for you. And I was, I was nice about it. I called him up and said, we have a no solicitation policy, you're not supposed to be doing this, please don't come back. I mean, how neighborly was that, right? I mean, it wasn't very nice. But yet, that's kind of, you know, I'm kind of a rule keeper, but a little gray in some areas, and, and having to deal with that. So, so answering the door is one of those things that really plagues and really troubles us. And, and not long ago on a Saturday, um, you know, uh, the doorbell rang, and Patty and I both looked at each other like, you going to get it? You going to get it? And this kind of went back and forth for a while. Meanwhile, the doorbell has rung, ding dong, and at our house when the doorbell rings, those monsters I was telling you about, they go running for the door and they want to tear anything up in sight and, and they just want to go outside and, and just rip off you know, the toenails of anybody who's standing at our door because they're guard dogs. And um, so it's like, oh man, somebody's at the door. And so finally, you know, I just decided, listen, I'm the man of the house. Um, I'm gonna, you know, you're my wife. You need to, you need to do what I'm gonna tell you to do. <laughs> is she here? <laughs> oh, oops, oh, she's over here. Ooh. And so, so I thought, you know, I mean, guys, you all do the same thing right at home, right? It's really quiet in here. Okay. Um, so, so, so anyway, so I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm going to, you need to go do this and I'm tired. I don't like answering the door. You need to go answer the door. Um, and I was just going to, you know, show her who was the boss. Well, on my way to answer the door, um, I, uh, I, I stopped at those, we have one of those little side windows at the door, and I stopped there, and I kind of looked you know, through the window of the door, it's kind of that uh, glass that kind of changes, morphs the shape that's out there, so it's not like clear to see through, and we have a side window, so I'm kind of peering around the kitchen where I can't be seen looking, and uh, I'm like, oh man, there's a silhouette out there, I got to go answer the door. So I prepared myself, like, okay, here it is. So I quickly opened the door, ready to just say, how can I help you, what do you need, no, we're not interested, bye, see you later. And, and I turned back and said, Patty, it's okay, it's just a box. Uh, the UPS guy had rung the doorbell and had left the box there, and he had run off, and so kind of saved the day with that and, and didn't, have to, didn't have to do anything with that. But you see, let's fast forward now to today's neighborhoods. Um, remember when I told you that I have 67 homes in my neighborhood, I only know two households, and, and being nice isn't being a neighbor. It's actually knowing the people who live near you. And my guess would be that I'm not the only one making these confessions today. My guess would be that this room at our services are probably filled with people just like me 
who struggle every day with time and ability and, and energy level to, to put in to invest in the people in our homes. We probably are better meeting people at the ball fields than we are next door. So Jesus had a lot to say about this. So the whole gospel message is built upon the words, love your neighbor. And Jesus said, don't just get to know your neighbor. He said, you have to get to know them, but you have to love them. And to love them, you gotta understand their story. You have to understand what's going on in their life. You have to understand what's happening in their household. You have to come alongside of them in a covenantal relationship. I know this is making some people feel uncomfortable, but you, we have to do that. And it's not so that we can get the stuff on them and be nosy and all that. It's so that we can generally build a relationship and love the people that we're surrounded. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, the core of Jesus' ministry was built upon relationships in the home. Uh, we see in Luke chapter, chapter 19, uh, Jesus is walking in his teaching ministry. He's traveling. There's a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. The Bible says that he's challenged by some height issues. He was probably made fun of by the people in his neighborhood. Um, but, but what we find out is Zacchaeus is also ripping people off. Uh, he has this ability to transact and buy things from people, but his measuring system just isn't right, and he kind of sways it his way, and whenever he measures it, he's actually getting the benefit of something that's worth more than what he's paying for. So he's not a good neighbor, and people are getting ripped off try, time and again, and Jesus is in town, and there's something about Zacchaeus that wants to see Jesus, something about Zacchaeus that wants to know Jesus. And he gets to this point, and he climbs up a tree so he can see. And what, what Luke says to us is that when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Notice that Jesus didn't say, let's go have a bonfire together or let's go down to the mall. He said, I need to come to your house. So the core of Jesus's ministry, the centrality of Jesus's ministry was developed to be something that happens in homes. Uh, we see another example in Matthew 9. Uh, Jesus is calling a man to be his disciples. Here's what Matthew writes. Jesus went up from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So other people outside of the neighborhood we're asking about this. Now, where did Jesus go? Where did Matthew go? They went to Matthew's house. Jesus didn't say, come follow me somewhere else. He said, follow me to your house. And they went to his house and, and sinners and tax collectors. So, so who were the people at Matthew's house eating there? They were Matthew's neighbors. They were the same people like Matthew. And Jesus chose to, to have dinner and eat there. And, and it really upset people uh, because they couldn't quite understand why the one proclaiming to be the Messiah was interested in the imperfect. So we see a, a, a couple of things here that, that comes out. It's in Luke 4, uh, math, or Luke tells us that uh, after synagogue, after church, Jesus went to Peter's house, Simon's house. Now, uh, Jesus goes there not to do anything else except to hang out with his friend Simon. So sometimes we say, well, wait a minute. When Jesus went to people's houses, the focus of it was that, that he wanted to do miracles. And there's certainly plenty of miracles that happen in that. But in every story that we read of Jesus' miracle, not once do we see he specifically goes somewhere or to someone's house to specifically perform a miracle. That's always secondary. He goes to someone's house to develop a relationship. He's there because he wants to know them. He's there because he wants to find out more about them and them, them, they, more importantly, find out about he um, as we see these things. So, so in John chapter two, uh, we see 
the first sign. Now, John calls them signs. The other gospel writers call them miracles. So when you're quoting the gospel of John, don't say miracles. It's signs, but no, it's a miracle. And that tells people that, that, that John, you're, you're talking about the gospel of John. So John says the first sign that Jesus does is he's attending a wedding, and he turns water into what? wine, okay? So, so it's very clear in the gospel story, in John's gospel, that Jesus does not attend the wedding so that he can perform a miracle. His mom asks him or commands him to do it later, but Jesus goes to the wedding. Why? Because people that he was in relationship with invited him. His friends said, come to this wedding. We love you. Now, of, of, of you who are married or who have ever planned a, a wedding, um, how many of you have gone through making a wedding guest list? Anybody in the room? Yeah, we've done it. And, um, you know, when our daughters uh, were, were talking to us about who should come, we kept saying, these can't, all these people, these thousands of people cannot be close friends. I mean, you know, we have to shorten this. I mean, we're not inviting acquaintances. We're inviting close friends. And so you, you learn very quickly that in Jesus' case, um, at this wedding, he was the close friend of the bridal party. Now, how many of y'all invited your closest friends to your wedding? Only two of you. Okay, well, that's, that, that's all right. Okay, but, but anyway, uh, some more. It's okay to raise your hand in church. I'm not going to call on you or, or embarrass you or any way of that. I just am looking for some response that happens there. So, so Jesus, secondarily at the wedding, performs this miracle. And we see a great change and a great thing that, that happens with this. His miracle was secondary to his relationship. So this is why the church of today, this is why we, the church, capital C, why we have to change our DNA. Um, and about 20 years ago, we went through as a nation and probably a world what was called the church growth movement. I'm a byproduct of that as a lay person and as an early pastor. And the way that the church growth movement looked was we did church this way. We said we need to develop every program, hire every staff person possible. We need to offer all the things that anybody could ever want because we want to be all things to all people at all times. That was the church growth movement. And because we did all of those things, we thought they will come to the church. And a lot of churches like Willow Creek and Saddleback and a lot of those mega churches back then actually exploded in growth because of those things, because of the church growth movement. Well, the times have turned, and how you do church today is not how you did it 25 years ago. And we've learned that Jesus' command to love neighbor isn't to have slick programs at your church. And nowhere in the gospel do I read where it says that the church needs to offer all these programs so that people will come to know who God is. What does he say? He says, I want you to build a relationship with people. I want people to come to church because they know they're loved. I want people to come to church, God says, because they know that they can meet me there, that you'll be there to bind their wounds, that you will walk them through their, their darkest moments, that you will celebrate their highest fives with them when they're on the mountainside, that you'll give guidance and wisdom whenever they seek answers to life's perplexing questions. That's why people come to church. And that is why Jesus said we're called to love our neighbors. And, and that's why we have to change and understand that home in, in the Bible is where Jesus did his ministry. And this is why it says in Acts chapter 2, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
Why did the church grow? Why did people um, have uh, become uh, believers in Christ? Why were there influences going on? Not because they had the best children's program, not because they had the best student ministry, not even because they had good preachers. They grew because people loved each other. They loved each other enough to even share a meal together. They broke bread. They, they expressed their vulnerabilities. They had accountability. And people knew, no matter who I am, I can come to that church and be accepted, and I can be loved. Well, one of the uh, things that we adopted as a church a couple years ago was uh, really after uh, North Point Church in, um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's a concept called Orange. And our, our student ministry, our children's ministry, preschool ministry, all of it is set, set up under this auspices of Orange. Now, remember back in your kindergarten days, okay? Um, you know, what colors make up the color orange? It takes two colors. What were they? Red and yellow, okay. So hold that for a second as a metaphor. Red, the love of the family, the heart of the family, the foundation of the family. Red, yellow, the love of God, the love of the church. The church's light into the life of families. You take the light, the love of the church, and you meld it with the love and heart of a family, and you get orange. And so we want to get orange. We want to get even more orange here. And we want to understand that that's what it's going to take, that, that God doesn't build a church on individualism. He builds it on, upon love and compassion. And here's a couple of things. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to read these to you because there's a lot of this here. Just stay with me. But here's what it means as we go with this metaphor. If we are for the gospel, for the church, and for the next generation, the next generation is not just the one that my kids are and not just what my grandkids are, but the, it's always the next generation. There's always the next, ge next generation coming. So if we're for all of that, then we probably need to be for our neighbors. <clears throat> what would happen in, in your neighborhood if... Uh, in the neighborhoods of our church or around our church if we suddenly decided to do these things. Our church became a place where people could build solid friendships. Our church was a safe place for their kids to talk about important stuff. Our church actually helps when something goes wrong in our community, not just service ourselves. Our church can help their family win at being a family. Our church answers the questions that, that we're really being asked, that we're not just telling people what to believe, but that we're, we're strong enough to understand that sometimes we're going to get asked questions, and we need not to be afraid to hear those questions or feel threatened by that. That our church gives people hope and a reason to believe. What would happen if, if those of us who are in the church simply decided that we are, that we are for our neighbors? Um, think, think about the phrase, what that means, for our neighbors. For, in favor of, not against, representing, supportive, pro, to help someone win. For, for our, the hour. You and me, all of us, every church, every denomination, it's not just about St. Paul. Every style of worship, all churches of all colors, that we, the church of God, see it as our shared responsibility uh, to be orange uh, as, a, as a community. That neighbors, for our neighbors, neighbors, people who are like us, people who are different than us, people who live around the corner, people who believe what we believe, people who don't believe what we believe. That's a big one. People don't have to believe what we believe. We have a big enough tent here that we can house all kinds of questions and, and help people with that. People uh, who agree with us and people who don't agree with us, people who are human. As church leaders, we need to get smarter, kinder, and louder before those who live around us will trust what we have to say. I mentioned that last week, that the church can no longer be the one to tell people what to think, say, or do. They need to see us living it 
And once they see us living it, they'll believe it. Then, if we, for our neighbors, then what happens at our church will have lasting impact on what happens in, our, in the homes and the neighborhoods around us and will happen and an influence in our church. That's the direction we wanna go in this neighboring. How are we gonna do that? Well, every week, guess what? You're gonna have homework, okay? Say, uh, homework, okay. We're gonna do this. And, and, and I'm gonna have you hold me accountable too. I, I mean this, I trust this. Um, you, you should have gotten one of these when you came in. Hold this up for a second, this little handout. Let me tell you what your homework assignment is this week. You see in the middle where it says, this is where I live? That's where you live. So there are eight slots around that. Now I don't mean go to the houses of the people that you already know. Who are eight individuals on your street or in your neighborhood that you don't know yet? Write their names in here, go meet them. Introduce yourself. I know that that sounds horrible and hard, and, and over the week, we're gonna talk more about that. But go introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Bob. I've lived in this neighborhood for six and a half years with my wife, Patty, and the pastor at St. Paul up the road. I realize in six and a half years, I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. Can, can, can I learn a little bit more about you? What can we do together? Maybe you're gonna have a block party. Maybe you're gonna invite you know, people and you're gonna have a main dish and ask them all to bring a side dish. It doesn't matter. Get creative with this in your apartment complex and in the community center where you live. It doesn't matter. Get to know your neighbors, not just superficially. Get to know your neighbor. Now, some of you are probably saying, Pastor, you're the only weird one in the room because I know everybody on my street. I know everybody in my neighborhood. Well, you know what? Good for you. I don't. And so I have to believe because I don't, there's other people who don't either. And folks, we're in this together. This isn't, I'm better than you, you're better than me, or we're better than other people or whatever. We're in this together. So that's your homework assignment. So what do you do with that? This coming week uh, at school, wherever you are, I want you to take time to uh, send us a tweet. I want you to Facebook it. Make sure you're including uh, us with it. Share it with us here at St. Paul. I want you to send us a text message. Let us know how your experience is coming, getting to know your neighbors. You can even um, go here. We, um, uh, you can hashtag us at how to neighbor. Um, you, can, you can do that. Make sure we're hearing from you. And every week I'm hoping that I can share some of your comments as to how it's going, the challenges you might be having, the successes that are happening. Folks, we're gonna know our neighbors. And in order for us to meet and, and really help 20,000 people in the next five years know who the Lord is, it takes us to step out of our front door and go next door. Will somebody say amen to that?